the practices that we have been doing together here are helping us towards this goal of what we call the holy life, the holy life, which the Buddha called the unshakable deliverance of mind and heart in the sure heart's release. Uh, And I'll read that to you in a moment. Beautiful passage of words by the Blessed One. And all these practices that we've been doing are awareness practices. They're all mindfulness practices. One of our teachers that you've heard spoken a lot about, Manindraji, let us know in this format that we had to, in our lives, practice three things um, in terms of the Dhamma, three pillars of the Dhamma, in order to live an integrated and embodied life in the Dhamma. So I'd like to name those three things, those three areas to you. The first pillar of the Dhamma he called dana. Dana is this sense of giving, giving of our time, giving of our energy, giving of our care, sometimes our resources, to support one another, to have a connected life in this realm of relationships, in this realm of humanity, so that we could live in harmony with one another. And then the second uh, pillar is the pillar of sila. Sila is uh, the, you know, it's the precepts we take every morning, the precepts of non-harming, And it helps us to live in harmony, not only with others in our lives, in our workplace, in our area of study, in our area of uh, family life, in the larger community, but it also, it helps us to live in harmony with those around us, but it also helps us to live in harmony with our highest values. And that's something that we don't normally think about. Are we living in harmony or in alignment with our highest values in life? And this is the practice of sila, refraining from uh, speech and behavior that is disharmonious and then cultivating a harmonious connection in our speech and behavior. And the last of the three pillars is called bhavana. This means development. And it's a development of both concentration and also wisdom. This is our practice of meditation that we're learning here in when we do our sitting here together or in the walking practice. This is a practice of con- practices of concentration, which also leads to the development of wisdom. So Manindra would say that we really have to understand their importance and really balance out our lives so that we know we are fulfilling uh, the practice and the development of all of those in our lives. It gives our lives a better chance of experiencing that deep inner peace that all of us have come here to do this practice for, really. We all may describe it in different ways, But it's that deep peace and happiness, not conditioned by the things of this world, but something that we can know within and of ourselves, beyond the conditions of this world.
So we learn through these practices how to navigate the challenging parts of our lives, the parts in relationship to life in community, in in the bigger sense of the world at large, too, our families. What we learn when we're uh, doing these practices of living in harmony is we learn that we can't completely control how life is around us, but we can know how to control ourselves in relationship with life. And that's what we're majorly aiming for in these practices. We're learning how to understand our inner life so that we can know when an intention for uh, benefiting all of life around us comes up, we feed that. And when we know it's not beneficial, we refrain from going there. So we learn how to look at the habit patterns, the default settings of our lives and our hearts, and use them to transform the obstacles, use the mindfulness of them to transform what those obstacles seem to be so that we're onward leaning, leading with our lives. We're leaning our lives towards this sure heart's release. So I'd like to read to you from the Buddha's words, and this is from the simile of the heartwood. It's in the Majjhima Nikaya. The Blessed One said, So this holy life, Brahmins, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind, the sure heart's release, that is the goal of the holy life its heart would, and its end. And when the Buddha talks about the sure heart's release, it means releasing those qualities of mind and heart that we act out in our speech and behavior, in our default settings, our habitual patterns of the mind that cause disharmony in our lives around us. And then we're also, of course, not in harmony with our highest values. So it releases basically greed, hatred, and delusion. And that's what ends up in a a sense of this purity of the heart and the mind. In our tradition, uh, you know, there's often used this word uh, enlightenment, but most of us like to use the word purification more. It's uh, this practice is the purification of greed, hatred, and delusion. And this is what the Sure Hearts release is all about. So tonight, now that our thoughts are going towards being back in the world of family, relationship, back in the world where we hear the news of the world, how are we going to face that? And I'd like to give some reflections on sila, or living in harmony, so that we can really pay closer attention to our words and behavior, our actions in life. This is the basis for the Sure Heart's release. Refraining from harming through our speech and behavior. So you'll notice um, when we take the precepts in the morning 
that each precept is framed as a rule of abstinence, refraining from the harm that comes from killing, taking what is not belonging to us. In, in this retreat here, we're abstaining from all sexual behavior. When we go home, we're going to be uh, taking the precept to abstain from sexual behavior that is harmful to others. But this abstinence also includes a positive aspect. And in some of the teachings in the ancient texts, the basic virtue or aspect to be cultivated when we abstain is primarily compassion. There are other aspects to be um, cultivated when we abstain from taking what is not given. We uh, practice generosity when we abstain from um, killing or harming any living being, we practice uh, protecting all of life, and etc. So we've all been, um, we've all had the gratitude of being around inspiring elders of our lives. Most of you, or if not all of you, have had that as well. When we notice the elders in our lives who have taken special care around their speech and behavior. And even though, you know, as they got older, like my own mother, even as she got, got older, she took really, um, care, she paid really special attention to her speech and her behavior of not harming. And I noticed that through the years, though her physical body changed over the many years before she died at the age of 89, my mother's speech was so beautiful. She would tell me, before you speak, roll it around your mouth a hundred times before you let it out, (laughs) in her Filipino accent. Roll it around your mouth. (laughs) And so, you know, I don't always... um, pay attention to that. You can ask my colleagues. (laughs) But um, sometimes I say things in jest that even the Buddha said, don't even say those things in jest. Um, But my mother, when she died, she didn't have a wrinkle on her face. And, And the beauty of her inner beauty really shone forth in her life, just that she had a serene countenance on her face. So what becomes more noticeable even when that youthful beauty diminishes as we grow older is a beauty in the glow and the strength that comes from within. So I like to talk about sila as inner beauty and and notice how it grows as we grow older. It's a kind of radiant inner wealth that we can have. So by inner beauty, I just want to point out, it means the qualities of a discerning, wise mind so that we act uh, and speak with compassion and with kindness, with an open heart. And this, the wisdom part of it confidently discerns what leads to disharmony and refrain from that, what leads to harmony and nourish that, Feed that with beautiful words and beautiful actions in our lives. 
So also this inner beauty gets developed starting from our wise intentions. During this retreat, we try to help all of us pay more attention to intention. So when this um, intention or this about-to moment to act or to speak arises, we start to see more closely what is it accompanied with. And if it's accompanied by something beneficial, we continue. If it's accompanied by something harmful, then we refrain. So it's not only watching our intentions or knowing when intention arises in that very subtle way, but being very careful to notice what is accompanying that. What is that intention filled by or motivated by? And so we, we be just, just become much more careful with our intentions, our resolves, and we activate the energy on purpose to um, be more kind, like doing the metta practice, and which is infused also with compassion and equanimity. So tonight I wanted to put special attention on this harmonious living through speech and behavior, because it's something that we can do when we're home. It's a really basic uh, foundation for wisdom for freedom to arise. So I mentioned that these two areas of our lives are important. This living in harmony with one's highest inner values. So we have to know what they are. You know, these very basic values of non-harming through words, through action and living in harmony with the highest values of the community that we live in. So at these two levels, when we do this, we experience what we call the bliss of blamelessness. When we do this, when we um, act in this way, when we behave in this way in our lives at home, it it leads us to a deep sense of well-being, when I've, especially when I've done a retreat, when I come out of that retreat because I'm not speaking for a long time, there is not so much remorse that I need to have about my speech. So it feels really, really clean. I, really, I feel much cleaner when I go out into the world. It feels like I've detoxified in some way because of not speaking at all. That's a, that's a beauty of having this silence in our retreat. And also the beauty of taking these precepts because then we're reminded, you know, be careful when we step, that we're not stepping on little creatures or we're not harming anything at all directly or indirectly, just like the the recommendation to be careful about our standing around there with the, um, where the little birds are. With the, uh, and the mama bird because it prevents the mother from going to her children to feed her. So um, this is an, maybe an unintentional harm that we're doing by, you know, enjoying ourselves but harming others. So being super, super careful, it, we begin to get so sensitive to these ways of being in the, in the world. You know, can we let go of our need to enjoy and just 
let, let the mama and birds have their time and space together. So this bliss of blamelessness leads to a very deep sense of well-being that we didn't harm even unintentionally. We did not harm. So this is from the Anguttara Nikaya, the words of the Buddha. And someone asked, a householder asked, um, and what is the happiness of blamelessness? And the Blessed One answered, um, A noble disciple is endowed with blameless bodily, verbal, and mental action. When one thinks, I am endowed with blameless bodily, verbal, and mental action, one experiences happiness and joy. This is called the happiness or the bliss of blamelessness. And sometimes when we feel that delight and joy come up in our practice, it's because we've really been following closely that in our lives or in our time here together. It's said that this kind of blamelessness and this kind of paying close, careful attention to our actions and our speech is a cornerstone upon which the Eightfold Noble Path is built upon. And so um, it's a beginning practice, the Buddha said. This kind of conduct composes the mind. It makes it easily quiet. It has a far-reaching effect on us. So I can remember times of going to a retreat when my children were growing up. Now, maybe now at this time um, that I'm going to speak about, they were teenagers, or preteens, and that's some of the hardest uh, times of a mother and father's life, right? Those of you who know. So I remember times when things were harmonious at home and I'd go into practice and my mind was really quiet and I could just kind of open my heart and mind in a careful way to things that were arising. But when... I had a difficult time with one of my children. Um, I have three daughters and a son. This usually was one of the daughters. Um, I went to the practice. I went to retreat. It was really difficult. And of course, the practice then is to face the difficulty, to look at whatever is coming up because those deeply rooted things in the mind and the heart are really important also to pay attention to. So... um, I realized that it's it's good for me to keep harmony in, in my family life so that maybe it will be easier for me to open my heart and see what's going on. Maybe the things won't be so overwhelming that it takes a while to overcome and retreat. So in this still and quiet mind, it said it's possible to experience and see things as they really are and not have to see all the veils or all the, um, uh, what you're seeing through, what lens you're seeing through, as somebody said today. When that person asked the question, I remembered how Upandita would ask me when I'd come in for doing the interview. Not all the time, but a few times he would say, what color glasses are you wearing today? Yogi Kamala. That's how it would be interpreted. Like, what lens am I seeing through? 
<clears throat> so it's possible, it's more possible to see the truth of life, to see what they call the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the, the way things are, the way things unfold. So sometimes I've come to practice when it was a, like the, the mind and heart was like a placid, mirror-like lake that could reflect, you know, the mountains around it or one could see deep within the layers of the lake to the various currents that pushed and pulled my mind and heart around or various debris that were there or things floating on the top that were a problem for my life. And uh, it was really important for me to be able to have that clarity when I went to practice and sila would really help to pay close attention to living in harmony. The Dhamma places a great deal of importance on living in harmony, on sila. It's the first of the practices that um, the Buddha would offer, one of the first. It said that when a community would invite the Buddha to give a talk or to offer Dhamma to the community, the first thing that the Buddha would offer is the teaching in generosity. And basically it's because it's through this giving, this sharing of our lives with others that we um, experience that deep connection in life that gives us a sense of well-being. And also, um, on another level, and in another connection, it has helped the Dhamma to survive all these 2,600 years because of the community that would invite the Buddha and his disciples to offer the Dhamma. Um, They would give um, food, they would give shelter, they would give medicine and and clothing and, and things that would keep their bodies safe and protected. And so the giving part was very important, giving, dana. And then secondly, and very close conne- closely connected with that, is he would offer the community a sense of living in harmony. So all the talks on sila, on living in harmony, would be offered This is so important, and yet it's interesting when the Dhamma came to the West, because we're we're a very intelligent society, and people are so interested in the mind, that when the Dhamma first came to the West, we learned this bhavana part first, you know, the development of the mind and the heart, this meditation. And the sila part wasn't given a whole lot of airtime in the beginning. It is now, but I think it still could use a lot more. Um, so now, you know, in, in, the, in uh, the West, we're trying to give this more airtime. <laughs> so we understand the importance of sila in our lives. In the Samyutta Nikaya, Uh, someone approached the Buddha and asked, let the Blessed One teach me the Dhamma in brief. And he answered, well then, Bhikkhu, cultivate the very starting point of wholesome states. And what is a starting point of wholesome states? Virtue that is well purified and view that is straight. 
then when your virtue is well purified and your view straight, based upon virtue, established upon virtue, then you should develop the four establishments or the four foundations of mindfulness. In other words, then you should practice meditation. So it's important for us to look at our own lives and see how much, um, how much care are we giving this area of our lives, in our daily lives. And most of us, all of us, are good human beings. And there are areas of our lives which we can refine more, you know, to look more closely at um, where we can refine this in our lives. Where can we see more subtle areas that we need to pay attention to in connection with this sila. So there are times when, for in my life, I look back and see that there are places I need to clean up a little more. You know, especially when I was raising my children. Now they're grown adults. But I look back, even now I look back and have a lot of cringing moments. Ooh, I shouldn't have gone in that direction with this daughter. And uh, I should have said more with my son in this direction. But you know, the time has passed now. And and basically they turned out to be pretty good. (laughs) Still some areas, but... You know, they'll work it out. It's not my problem now. <laughs> so, um, But I, I do see, when I look back, you know, there could have been um, more care in, in my life about my speech and about my behavior. You know, walking off, slamming doors and making them clean all the cabinets when they didn't wash the dishes exactly as I wanted them to, you know, as a lesson. I mean, what did that do? It just made them not do the dishes later on in their own life, you know. So um, I'm glad I just leave it all to them now. I remember one time um, I got a lot more sensitivity to my speech about being truthful and being precise when I went to my first month-long meditation. Manindraji, um, sort of, Manindraji was my first teacher, and um, he was a very loving and kind person that knew a lot about the Dhamma. So, I don't know if Joseph told this story already, but you'd ask him one question, and he'd spend as much as he could of the day and into the night to answer that question, and he would only stop when the last person would leave. Um, so he, he knew he had a lot of knowledge, but he was also very kind. And so I, I learned from my first teacher this kind of kindness, this kind of gentleness. And I think my practice was okay, but it was kind of loose. So he um, encouraged me to go and uh, learn from Sayadaw Pandita, who was a very strict teacher a very precise kind of a teacher. So I went to my first retreat, month-long retreat in Australia, um, where I didn't go home. I did go to a month-long before that, but I went home to check on my children. And this one was, I went far away, so I wouldn't have this excuse to just go home easily if I wanted to. Uh, And I went to Australia 
to do a month long with Seda Upandita in 1985. And during that retreat, we were giving our first reports to the teacher, and we were in little groups. And um, maybe there were five or six of us, something like that. And we had to let him know how we were doing in our practice. And one, one thing that people would say, because we didn't know how to report. There was a specific way to report then, but we were just kind of saying how it is for us. And people before me would say, oh, I'm doing very well, um, Venerable Sir. I'm doing very well. I can stay with my breath for a long, long time. I don't, I don't have much sleepiness or much restlessness. I don't see many hindrances. You know, and like this is about the first three days of retreat. It was kind of unbelievable to me. <laughs> I thought I was definitely in the wrong group. And um, so uh, I listened and I thought, uh, that, uh, that's not the truth for me. The truth for me is that I was sleepy and restless. So I kind of reported something like that. It's, I'm just getting here. I traveled a long way, feel very sleepy. And, and Sayadawji would, he would just nod and, and listen to everybody. That night in the Dhamma talk, what he said was, it's really important for you to pay attention to the five precepts and to be um, really refined in how you speak, refined in your truthfulness and precise, because if you don't let me know precisely what's going on, then I can't help you. And, and also it's good for your own karma to do that. He said that in his own way, and it was through a translator, not exactly the way I'm saying it now. And so he said, those of you who have not been precisely truthful I would like you to come to my kuti, my, my place I'm staying, tomorrow, and to line up, and then one by one, I'd like you to tell me that you did not tell the truth. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then, it, and also to ask for forgiveness. Um, it, wasn't for, it wasn't for his sake. It wasn't for him. It wasn't because he felt, you know, he's so noble, nobody should... Um, do that to him but it was for their sake that he was asking them to do this and actually in, in the Dhamma if you, if you say an untruth to a noble be- being it's really not good for your karma to do that it's really not good so um, for their own good you know you, you have to ask please forgive me so I, I was walking in some place on the second floor and I was looking um, in another building and I was looking at that building where the people were lining up and I kept doing walking meditation back and forth and thinking, should I line up? What did I say? What? And I really examined, did I say the right thing? Was I, did I say something that was even imprecise? And I thought, no, I was, I was pretty okay. I didn't... Um, I didn't lie or I wasn't imprecise. I told the truth. So I thought, I don't have to line up. Whew, you know, that felt really good. Because I was remembering in his Dhamma talk the previous night, he said, how can you experience the truth if you can't speak the truth? Wow, that really got to me. And after that, I was really precise in letting him know how long I sat, how long I walked, 
whether I wasn't paying attention at certain times. I mean, he would really ask us um, questions like, um, I remember hearing from Sharon Salzberg asking her a question of, um, what did you experience when you were washing your face? Something like that. And then you had to answer, you know, and um, did you wake up on the in-breath or the out-breath? Just really precision kind of things. So it really helped me to be sensitive to my speech uh, during that time. So how can you realize the truth if you can't speak the truth? Um, It's a very good question, you know, that we can ask ourselves. It's said that the causes for this careful attention to arise are called the two guardians of the world. And they're not guardians like guardian spirits or something like that uh, in the outer environment. But they're guardian uh, spirits in inwardly. They're guardians inwardly. These two guardians of the world. They're guardians within our hearts, in our minds. And I realize that this is the shining light and the glow of inner beauty as we get older. Um, in the ancient language of Pali that the Buddha's uh, teachings were translated from, these are known as hiri, and it's spelled H-I-R-I, and otapa, O-T-T-A-P-P-A, for those of you who are interested, but you don't have to remember that. These two guardians of the world. So I'd like to um, describe what they mean, because they might have... Um, a place in your heart, a place in how you would like to um, see how they would influence you in your lives. So in Pali, the word hiri is translated as moral shame. But it's n- shame in the English language brings about a toxic self-aversion sense. And it's not like this at all in the Pali language, how it's defined in the Dhamma, the definition is, is not a meaning associated with self-aversion. According to one of our great translators, I think we've mentioned this person already, Bhikkhu Bodhi, he um, translates this hiri as a personal sense of conscience, a personal sense of having a conscience, being conscientious, Those are my words, being conscientious. And he also says an internal reference, an inner sense that our words or behavior don't feel right. We get that, you know. That's what I call these cringing moments when I have said something that isn't quite right, isn't in alignment with my inner highest values. And, uh, and they, it, that changes over the years, you know, where our highest values become um, something that we really respect in ourselves. It's a healthy form of sensitivity. It's an intuitive sense, and these are my words, it's an intuitive sense that this is hurtful to my heart. This, what I'm saying or doing, is hurtful to my karma to my karmic stream. Because when I just let them willy-nilly come out of my mouth and out of my actions, I'm feeding that 
default setting to harm myself by doing it over and over again. The harm of, in that way, it's a harm of delusion, but it could be added to that the harm of attachment and aversion. The harm of delusion is just feeding it without even knowing it. This is delusion. How it, It's just the habit pattern of it. Something always coming up. And we don't even shrink away from it. So in Hiri, we shrink away from doing or saying. So I want to give you an example. When I'm involved in a conversation with others and I feel the intention to speak, then I, I know that it's just about, you know, we all feel that in one way. It's just we're about to say something or we know we want to um, contribute to the conversation somehow. But other people, luckily I, I'm slow, you know. Other people can speak faster than me. So um, I have time to think about it. Is this really useful? I mean, the, all the elements of right speech, is it kind, is it useful? Um, is it the right time? Is it with the right attitude of mind? I mean, I don't go over all those individually. I can say them now, but at, in the moment I just sort of understand um, should I do this or not? And a lot of times now in my um, conversation, I realize it's not necessary. I mean, maybe what has been said is good enough. You know, why do we need to add any more to it? Or if I'm saying something, am I just kind of puffing up a sense of self to say what I'm saying? Or it would be better if I was just quiet, you know, rather than do that. So it's not, maybe it's not harming anyone, but it's producing this kind of attachment to self um, by saying what I think to say. So as I get older, it's, it's a lot nicer to just keep the silence, you know? It's a less expenditure of your energy. So... Um, I don't say as much, and I, I know that um, I, I, I'm about to say something, and there's something that in, inwardly says, don't go there, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's not with like, don't go there. It's like, don't go there. It's like a real warning. Like, what's the use of saying that? So we shrink away from it. Um, we don't let those words that are not necessary for our own sake, not necessary for other people's sake. So we, we develop that discernment more when we watch our, our speech. Um, so I, I call it keeping one's noble seat. Preserving an honorable standard for oneself and having a sense of dignity about one's behavior. I mean, I still have a lot to work on. I might seem like this, but you know, very soft-spoken person, but uh, I can be pretty fierce sometimes. <laughs> so we have this deep care for long-term well-being in ourselves. Sometimes we deeply know that when we let the default setting come out and we do its thing without refraining from it, 
there'll be a lot of cringing moments afterwards. There's a tightening in our hearts and our minds that we just don't need. So I read a simile of how Hiri feels when it's experienced uh, in our speech or behavior. And this comes from the path of purification. It's a commentary on the Buddhist teachings. Um, in Pali, it's called the Visuddhimagga. It's like seeing, it says, the, the simile is, says, it's like seeing an iron rod smeared with excrement. And one is just about to go out and grab it when it sees that excrement and it shrinks away in disgust. It says, ooh, no, and, and I'll see that, that my speech is going to say that. Not all the time, but more and more, just seeing that that happens. Shrinking away out of disgust. Now, this is a wholesome disgust for what might cause harm to our karmic stream. So one time I was practicing um, in Burma, and before I went there, I went through a very difficult time with um, some good friends. And in that time period, the mind kept going over and over the situation, feeling blamed, blaming myself, you know, towards them, and feeling a, a resentment, then feeling guilty because I felt that resentment. And, you know, it goes on and on. We kind of chase our, go around in circles, like chasing our tails. We do one thing thinking it's going to overcome and then it's just some, makes it worse. So I went to Seda Upandita. This was maybe in the first half of the retreat and it was happening over and over again. And I noticed a twinge of disgust when I would think, even think about it. You know, they weren't words coming out of my mouth, but they were really clear words in my mind. And so when I went to him, I said, "Um, this is coming up and I feel disgust at what what is happening, but it's not, doesn't feel like aversion, like I hate this. It just feels like, don't go there. You know, get, turn away from this. And that's when I asked him, is this hairy? Is this kind of like the respect for oneself? And he confirmed that it was. And so then I got to know the difference between disgust for what we're experiencing. That's different from aversion. When we know what we're experiencing, to keep feeding it with more thoughts or more like, um, you know, he or she or they said this or that and then I'm going to say this and go over and over the conversation which doesn't lead anywhere but sometimes to a greater mess. (laughs) I remember Sayadawji saying, withdraw your energy from that experience. So it wasn't just disgust but you know when the mind would go round and round about it I would remember what he was saying, withdraw your energy. And it was like, the thing with disgust is like you go back, you know, it's like, and so I just felt this, I had this feeling of when that would come up again, it would be withdrawing. It would be always like I was ready to feed it, ready to feed it out of, you know, habit. And so this way it was like, mm mm-mm not going there, but it had to happen over and over again before I finally could feel the mind 
uh, quiet down. And then one day, you know, out of the, just days would pass, days would pass, and I remembered, I, I haven't been reminiscing about that at all for days now, and or longer than that. And I saw that that really was working. So that was that inner guardian of Hiri. So Hiri is respect for oneself, seeing the danger to oneself, to one's own karmic stream, because when we don't see what we're doing, we're just feeding that same habit pattern seeds that go in our karmic stream and they come up again when conditions are ripe. Then we have to face them over and over and over again. So this is basically delusion when we don't see it and we don't see the danger of it. We see it, but we don't see the danger of it. Delusion is seeing but not realizing that it leads to danger, basically. Ignoring is something different. Ignoring is when you just turn away from it. So here he is one of those inner guardians. Um, and it said the proximate cause for Hiri to arise is self-respect. So from our grandfather teacher, Mahasi Sayadaw, this is the teacher of Manindraji, also the teacher of Upandita, the teacher of Shweyumin, um, who is the teacher of um, Sayadaw Utejaniya. And other, there are other great teachers of Burma who were the um, students of Mahasi Sayadaw. So I'd like to read to you <clears throat> from his words. Hiri, or shame, is a feeling of disgust towards the defilements, towards the kilesas. As you try to be mindful, you find there are gaps during which the hindrances pounce on you and make you their victim. Returning to your senses, so to speak, you feel a kind of abhorrence or shame. It's a shrinking away from the hindrances. This attitude is called hiri. So see if you can remember that when you, when you do your practice. See if you can withdraw your energy from that whole loop. So the other, um, the other uh, one is Otapa. This is the other um, guardian of our mind, our hearts. And the English translation is moral dread or moral fear. And this dread or fear is not a defilement. It's a sense of social conscience. So this otapa has to do with uh, our relationship with others, a sense of social conscience. Here he has to do with a sense of, it's an internal sense. Otapa has to do with an external sense or relationship. This means it's a healthy form of fear of doing something blamable. A healthy form of concern of doing something that people that we respect will blame us for. And we have this in in our lives. I know um, sometimes I'll do or say something and I'll think, ooh, what would Upandita think of this? You know? Um, So that 
that is when our speech or behavior could be harmful to others. So we try to catch it before that happens. We want to do no harm through our speech and behavior. And of course, all that comes from our thoughts, from our mind, from habit patterns in the mind. So it includes that as well. But the sila, the precepts, have mainly to do with speech and behavior. So it's this otapa that's a wise sense of knowing and respecting the communal standards for harmony. So like here, when we're in community and we have this standard of silence to keep the container of the retreat, so we don't want to break that communal standard because once we, we see that in other ways too, I'm just making this an, uh, an example, when one person breaks or a couple of people break the communal standards, it does affect other people. You know, we, we go back to you know, feeling uh, our inner silence, of course. And we have to speak with one another about our yogi jobs, etc., or sometimes our roommates about this and that. But we try to keep, uh, basically, uh, this noble silence. And when, one, when people start breaking it, then it gives permission for other people. And then we see it's all broken. You know, the communal standard is broken. So it's said that a community is as fragile as one person's unconscious, unmindful speech or behavior. So we see that it's true. Um, so in this respect, we not only have to pay attention to what is, what is our intention as we do things, but we have to pay a great intention with otapa as to what would this speech or behavior, what impact would that have on others? Because a lot of times maybe we're not, um, we know we have good intentions, but we're not doing the other half of that, which is so important, is considering what impact would, would my speech or behavior say, uh, be on another person or on the community? So intention cannot be separated from impact if we want to be completely aware of our our sila. Paying attention to impact is a highly sensitive way of living, thinking ahead. So um, what we might fear is that members of the community would lose their trust in us. Um, I know I've experienced, and probably you all have, when something is broken, when a betrayal has been made in our relationship, it's very hard to trust that other person, that person. And so people can feel that way towards us too. So we don't want to lose their, their respect I remember one time one of my close Dharma girlfriends um, was having some difficulty in her relationship and um, said she was, she was um, very tempted to start to go into another relationship without kind of ending what this person had in a, um, in a good way, that relationship. And so 
what stopped her was she said, oh, if Upandita finds out, he wouldn't like me, <laughs> you know. I would be blamed or I wouldn't be respected by him. And that made a lot of uh, sense to her. So it's, uh, they say that the proximate cause for moral fear for this otapa is respect for others. Respect for others. So in this way, uh, remembering not only intention, what we're planning to do, what is it accompanied by, you know, is it accompanied by something beneficial, but the other half of that is considering the impact it would have on someone else. Manindra used to say, um, there's an inner signal. I, w- I would ask him, um, sometimes I see he'd, he'd have a little uh, a look on his face, you know, like he didn't like something. And um, it usually had to do with my cooking <laughs> and when he would stay with me. And I would say, Manindra, you look upset. You don't you, I could tell some look on your face, and he—he he would first. He would say, "Upsetness is there, but upsetness is not me." I mean, that could be um, <laughs> a spiritual bypass, but I don't—I <laughs> don't think it was with him, you know, because things can show on your face. And but he knew that he wasn't going to say anything that would hurt me, you know. So, uh, but he would say, he, he didn't, he, he wouldn't either. He, he would scold me sometimes, but that, you know, if you really want to choose a teacher, choose somebody that you would expect that person to tell you your faults. That you, 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 you don't have to be too proud, you know, to say, tell me what I should know about myself or... So both of my teachers kind of scolded me or admonished me, and that was good. I, I felt I had good teachers then. So Manindra, um, he would say, there's an inner signal, there's an inner signal that something is coming that I shouldn't speak or I shouldn't act. And we kind of know that. I call that my cringing moments, like, ooh, no, don't go there, you know. And um, sometimes it doesn't work, but a lot more times it works than it used to 20 years ago to know those moments when I might say or do something that wouldn't be nice. So Hiri and Otapa supported by mindful awareness. When we're mindfully attentive to this inner world of habit patterns, to the default settings that we have that we can humbly just open to and say, oh, yeah, that's true. This kind of pattern is here. And then refrain from speaking or acting. So this part of life is so powerful, this part of attending to sila, because we're really purifying, helping to purify the power that these defilements have in our lives when we don't speak. We, we know that they're there, but we're not letting them come out of our mouths or out of our behavior. Because when a defilement comes out of our mouth and we put it into the world, that karmic, um, the result of that karma is stronger than if we just knew that in the mind. 
or when it comes in our behavior, uh, you know, a defilement comes up and we act on it in our behavior, then the karma of that is much stronger in our, in, to arise again as something that will have an effect um, in our lives, unpleasant effect in our lives, in a, in a more powerful way. But compare that with a time when we, we see something that we're going to say, and not only are we develop something beautiful like renunciation or refraining, that's something beautiful. It's a beautiful quality of mind, renunciation. Refraining from saying or doing something that we see in the mind. This is good karma, you know. And then when we don't put it out there, it weakens that habit pattern. So if you want to weaken habit patterns, don't say or do. Don't act them out. And that will be an easier purifying your mind. This is um, purifying your speech and behavior is very powerful. And then that helps to purify your mind because then it's not so strong in the mind. So refraining is a powerful act. You've heard that saying, I I wish I knew the author of this, you can do or say something in an instant that can give you heartache for a lifetime because there's no impulse control. You know, we just... We know about that and the ways things are tweeted in this world. (laughs) So we have to be really, really careful that we're not acting out these impulse um, pulses that don't lead to anything beneficial. So when that happens, then this Hiri Otapa saves us. It guards us from further trouble. And you can reflect on situations in your own life when that has happened, maybe. A friend of mine told me that she had an interaction where she felt hurt and betrayed by someone very close to her, a sibling, and she wanted to strike out and to lash out at this person with very hurtful words. But she knew she had to wait. She knew she had to wait until things settled down and her words and behavior were something that she could rely upon. And when she felt more certain, then she talked it out. When she, she realized then she was really giving respect to herself, and she was also giving respect to her sibling by doing that, by waiting, not hurting herself, not hurting uh, her, her, her sibling. So sila is a beautiful form of renunciation, but it's also a beautiful form of cultivation because it's said that it's a cultivation of compassion when we do this. Compassion for ourselves, compassion for others. It also generates generosity, goodwill, you know, a lot of other beautiful qualities. So... When we have this protection, we feel like we live in a field of protection, in a, in a field of Dhamma that is protecting us. And when, when I use the phrase in metta, may I be safe and protected, sometimes I, the second phrase is, by my own goodness, 
by my own wisdom. And what I'm referring to is hiriotapa, in my own heart. So this is from Mahasi Sayadaw, um, an admonition about uh, this sila. So you should protect your morality with great care, just as you would protect your very life. You should not be negligent about your behavior, thinking that you can correct it later. You might die at any time. Morality is especially important for those who are practicing meditation. They should even honor and respect it more than their own lives and keep it fully purified. If you purposely and properly purify morality, then you will have a clear conscience every time you reflect about morality during your meditation practice. You will experience joy and delight, tranquility, happiness, and peace by observing the physical and mental processes every time they arise. You will see things as they really are, and you will gain further knowledge. I love that somebody could speak to me this way. And so the Buddha said, This magnificent chariot of the Eightfold Noble Path has Hiri Otapa as its backrest. If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely on, depend on, something on which you can sit comfortably as you travel onward toward your aspiration. If these qualities are weak, one risks losing mindfulness and all the dangers that ensue. Just as oil rises to the top of a pot submerged in water, so too your virtue, your goodness, your faith, your generosity will rise to the top. And that is what will carry you to your next destination. So may that be so. Let's sit for a moment and, and let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.